Sometimes you see that I'm mad Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel When everything goes wrong you see some bad Produced at the studios of KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon This is Prison Pipeline, I'm Doug McVeigh The Drug Policy Alliance held its 2023 Biennial International Reform Conference over the weekend of October 19th through 21st. Over a thousand activists, advocates, organizers, researchers, and others were in attendance discussing human rights, harm reduction, the criminal legal system, and of course, drug policies around the world. I had the pleasure of attending online, and I got several hours of fascinating, thought-provoking content to share with listeners. One of the panels held Thursday, October 19th, was entitled Writing Wrongs Worldwide, Drug War Reparations in a Global Context. This session explored what reparations could look like for communities that have most been harmed by the drug war with a focus on what the U.S. owes to global communities. Let's hear first from Zara Snap, director of Instituto Ria in Mexico. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here with all of you. Um, I also want to say that we were supposed to have another panelist on this uh, panel, who's Sai Lone uh, from Myanmar. But this year, getting visas and even getting visa appointments for international participants was an enormous challenge. Even in 2019, when there was the so-called Muslim ban, um, we had more, we had less difficulties. And this year. U.S. embassies around the world just don't have appointments until 2024 or 2025 as a means of not having people uh, come to the United States. And so Sai and many colleagues from different countries were either uh, denied or never given the opportunity to, to be on these panels. So I just want to name that because there are lots of voices that are missing um, that, that should have been here. Um, so speaking about um, yeah. so speaking about drug policy in Mexico is is basically also speaking about drug policy in the United States because possibly our drug control measures would not exist uh, in the same way if the United States was not our neighbor and and so I want to start uh, Mexico uh, illegalized cannabis actually before the United States, but with the pressure and with the support of the United States uh, in the 1920s. And it was in 1940 that a president whose name was Lázaro Cárdenas uh, decided he wanted to regulate all drugs because he was inspired by a doctor named Salazar Viñegras, uh, who had said this needs to be approached from a health perspective. So there was an experiment. There was a reglamento that was emitted that would regulate all drugs and there would be boticarios like pharmacies where people who use drugs we would be able to have gone and and had access uh, to substances so this work and there was pushback from non-state actors who were involved in the illegal market but the big pushback came uh, obviously from the united states so this experiment lasted six months and in those six months, then the United States decided to embargo all medicines going from the United States to Mexico. So they just said, we're not gonna send you anything. And that's then when the Mexican government said, well, we need these medicines and we're not going, you know, we're gonna roll it back. But we can just imagine what Mexico would have been 
if that could have flourished and if that could have been our policy without that intervention uh, from the United States. Later on comes Operation Intercept in 1969, which was to stop and search all trucks, all vehicles going from Mexico to the United States uh, to reduce cannabis going into uh, the United States from Mexico. They caused huge <laughs> traffic, you know. Um, 1977 to 1987 was Plan Condor, um, which was also to reduce cannabis production uh, through spraying through forced eradication in the states of Sinaloa, Durango, and Chihuahua. And, and these were all just reasons for the US military to be engaged in Mexico. And just as Isabel said, and probably Diana will also reinforce, um, the justification of the war on drugs is used all over the world to set up military bases and to set up interventions. Um, and in Mexico, I think it's also important to note that uh, the state does not act alone. It acts in complicity with non-state actors and organized criminal groups. And much of, you know, even infrastructure projects can sometimes be done by one side or the other, you don't know. So this idea of, of good and bad becomes much more uh, intertwined. So in 2006, the president at that point, Felipe Calderón, militarized our public security. Uh, so this put the military into the streets and this caused a huge increase in human rights violations. And so in that time, some of the data that we have, that is also very important to say that every single one of these numbers represents a person and that person represents a family and a community. We have around 33,000 homicides a year. It's estimated that about between 70 and 75% of those homicides are related in some way to organized criminal groups or conflicts with this between the state and organized, you know, or civilians and the state because our levels of lethality when there is an interaction or a conflict between two groups is very high. I mean, it's most likely that everyone will die except the military. And then you don't have to investigate anything because all the bad people died. So really, it's just another way of also um, pushing forward impunity. Um, during this presidential administration, we've had 166,708 people die of homicides. This is one person every 15 minutes. And this is obviously primarily, it is a gender issue, it's primarily young men. So we see life, life expectancy reducing because of that, just as we see life expectancy in the United States reducing uh, because of the overdose crisis. We have more than 100,000 people who've been disappeared in this time, 111,500 people. Those are the ones we know about. Those are the ones that have been reported. This also manifests itself in that we have 5,696 clandestine graves that have been identified. This is in 570 municipalities. So we know that there are certain states that there are more I live in the state of Veracruz. We have one of the, we're number two on, the, on uh, the number of clandestine graves. And then we have people, family members, who are doing search brigades, who are searching for their loved ones, whether in life or in death. So there's different kinds of mechanisms for searching depending on who and how you're looking for those people. So in life, maybe you go to treatment centers, you go to prisons, you go to uh, places where human trafficking might be happening, uh, you seek out, no? And in when you're searching uh, for people who've been disappeared, you 
oftentimes these clandestine graves are discovered because of tips. So family members who've organized, who have their groups of brigadas de búsqueda, they'll get WhatsApp messages. I know that in these woods, this went on during a certain time. We would hear noises, we would hear people, we would see trucks. And so then they go there and they begin to search. And in the last search brigade that they did uh, most recently, they were able to find, as they say, the treasures of 17 people. So they're able to identify. So all of this is because we started a war on drugs, like in a very intentional, strong way of, we are going to show that we are stronger than non-state actors. But when we only scale up with weapons, which is what the US does when they provide international cooperation, you know, the Merida Initiative, which um, has given to Mexico over the last, uh, well, during the years of the Merida Initiative, which now has a different name, from 2008 to 2014, they gave us two, gave, <laughs> they provided $2.4 billion, but all of that money is conditioned. You have to spend it on helicopters on bombs, on weapons that then you will parade through the streets. So our children grow up totally normalized to seeing huge weapons being held by the Guardia Nacional now and the military. And so it's really a circular business for the United States. And then that's where, and we were talking about this in a session before this, private companies come in because then they're gaining resources from them because they're US military contractors that then the Mexican government pays to be supplied to then be able to have greater security. But really this is an investment in our insecurity because things are not getting better. They actually get steadily worse. And HRI, Harm Reduction International has this report that they came out with uh, recently that that begins to track some of this money and it's some it's work that other organizations have also been doing of how do we track and really as most of you as some of you who, who come from the United States it's how do you begin to change that and that was a bit of the goal of of this panel you know um, so between 2000 and 2004 46 percent of the US Mexico uh, funding was for narcotics um, and narcotics control. When we think about how the military has just integrated itself into our public life, in the 15 of our 32 states in Mexico, the heads of security are from the military. So we're just outsourcing, and not even outsourcing, but we're giving all of these jobs to the military. And as some of you might know, once you put the military in power, it's very hard to take them out of power. You know, we worked so hard to have civilian governments, and now we're handing it over. And that's where, and I just want to end with two more um, kind of data points. When we think about how the war on drugs manifests itself in Mexico, we have a term that's crimes against health. So all drug crimes are couched in crimes against health because really what's the crime if I'm deciding to use drugs myself, you know, it's, it's only, <laughs> so then it's like against health of everyone, you know, the public nuisance. And in Mexico in, um, in 2015, we had 
30,000 people who were detained and arrested for crimes against health. In 2018, we had an increase um, to 31,000. 84% of these are for small-scale dealing or some sort of small-scale crime, which could even just be possession above of our, our very low thresholds. So for cannabis, you're allowed to carry five grams. For cocaine, you're allowed to carry a half gram. So anything above that is considered dealing. And then there's probably this huge number, which is people who have been arrested and detained, but who are never actually brought before justice, who are simply extorted or who are, who are abused while they're in, in the hands of law enforcement. And so it just creates um, where the law is applied in a very unequal and discriminatory manner. I'm not stopped on the street. I'm a white woman. I bring my children with me. No one's stopping me. So it deeply depends. That's the privilege that I carry of not being stopped. It deeply depends on how you look, whether the police are going to stop you and search you. And that's the reality of most of our countries. And But it's something that's slowly being incorporated of, but what are our rights as people who use drugs, as people who work in these spaces? And I would just end with saying, we didn't regulate cannabis in Mexico. I don't think it was the United States that intervened at the end of the day, and it's an analysis that we continue to do with colleagues. It was probably the military that didn't want to lose a market share of a market that they've been able to control since the 1940s. So I'll end there. Thank you. That was Zara Snap, director of Instituto RIA in Mexico, speaking on the topic of righting wrongs worldwide, drug war reparations in a global context at the Drug Policy Alliance's 2023 International Reform Conference. We'll be back with more in a moment. You're listening to Prison Pipeline. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Now let's hear from Diana Blanco, General Director of ILEX Acción Jurídica in Colombia, speaking on the topic of righting wrongs worldwide, drug war reparations in a global context at the Drug Policy Alliance's 2023 International Reform Conference. My name is Diana Blanco. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And I'm super, super excited and happy and also so nervous to be here with you talking about this uh, I'm so grateful because I think this is a really great space to have a voice in this conversation. Um, have a voice from the South and from also um, Afro-descendants population who have been disproportionately affected by the work on drugs. Uh, the question is about the effects uh, in this war in our territories. Um, I have to say that we are measuring the conflict in Colombia, not just because of the armed conflict uh, that we can say is around 60 years, but also for black people and Afro-descendants population and indigenous population in my country, the conflict is older than that because we are talking about time in centuries because of the colonization in which black communities, Afro-descendant communities in my country has been relegated or has been living consequences of different kinds and types of violence. We have been fighting for the recognition of in the existence of racism and racial discrimination in the criminal system, in the 
uh, in the drug policies and also in the criminal policies. We can identify at least three main consequences in this war. The first one, drug policies implemented in Colombia are largely influenced by international policies that criminalize both production and consumption. And this criminalization has a, an impact specifically in the Afro-Colombian population. For example, in Colombia, Pacific territories has been impacted for aspersions, has been impacted has been impacted for dispossession on his territories, has been impacted for criminalization of the Afro youth population, has been impacted for uh, the relationship with uh, agents of the orders or police brutality also. Uh, by 2021, the Pacific region, and this is something we have to say when we are talking about war, war, the drug war, because it's not just about policies, but also it's about inequality who, that happens in the, territory, in the territories mostly populated for Afro-descendants and indigenous populations in countries like Colombia in which we have a really important deficit in the access to rights like education, health, and employment. We cannot talk about winning the war on drugs without talking on social and racial justice. That conversation is not possible. But saying this, I have to say that in the Pacific region, we have a multi-dimensional poverty level of 20% over the general population. The Afro-descendant population is concentrated in these regions, not just the Pacific coast, but also the Caribbean coasts. And are these same areas where the coca growing is concentrated and this is the problem. There is a direct relationship, for example, between the 65% of these crops that are found in three departments in my country, Nariño, Norte de Santander, and Putumayo. This report states that 44% of the coca crops are found in a special management areas, which the 19% were focused, were focused on the lands of black communities. Then, if we are talking about consequences, then we have to talk with the black communities located on those lands. Afro-descendant populations has also been subjected to human rights violations by drug policies due to the proliferation of conflict in their territories. Then when we have, when we talk about the connection between armed conflict, war on drugs, and black communities, we have to talk about dispossession, 
lockdown, lockdowns, soil transformations of the land, changes in the destinations of the land uses, and delays I lease in my country. We have delays in the formalization of the land titles, if I say that in English, and I have to explain something right now just to be clear in what are we talking about in the Colombian context. In Colombia, we have Afro-descendant and black communities, Palenqueros, Raizales, four groups in the Afro-descendant communities. We also have indigenous populations. We, have, we also have farmers. Then when we are talking about the impact in these policies and in this world, we have to be radical in the contextualization on these impacts. Because, for example, when we are talking about black peoples or black communities in these lands like Chocó, Nariño, the Caribbean coast like the Sur de Bolívar, when we are talking about Valle del Cauca, we are talking also about some areas in my country which are, are areas of special management, are areas where the black communities has special land rights that has been perturbated for the glyphosate aspersions, but also for the presence of illegal uh, armed groups in their territories, which means that they cannot use their territories for the original meaning on these territories. That's just one of the consequences. But also in the urban areas, Afro-descendant population we have a lot of trouble, and I'm just, I'm, I'm just going to refer to one. And it's one trouble that has been taking a lot of our time in Elex Acción Jurídica and is our relationship with the police. Police brutality is a huge problem for Afro-descendants in rural and also urban areas. And we can see two phenomena in this in this relationship with the police. The first one is the racial profiling, which means that every time they see a black person, they make a profile on us. And this profiling, this, this profiling phenomena is also related to use and traffic of drugs. Even when you don't do drugs, the whole idea that the society have constructed around black people, and this also happens in Colombia, is a close, a close relationship with use and trafficking. And this has been impacting so much to our community in, in, the, in the urban areas, but mostly in the neighborhoods, mostly habitated or populated, but black communities, which are also uh, communities, very uh, neighborhoods, very, very poor. Mm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there. That was Diana Blanco, General Director of ILEX Acción Juridica in Colombia, speaking on the topic of righting wrongs worldwide, drug war reparations in a global context at the Drug Policy Alliance's 2023 International Reform Conference.
Now let's bring it back to domestic policies. Another panel held Thursday, October 19th, was entitled The Lure of Coercion. Don't be fooled by kinder, gentler drug war tactics. Let's hear from one of the panelists. Paula J. Lum, MD, MPH, is Professor of Clinical Medicine and Founding Program Director of the UCSF Primary Care Addiction Medicine Fellowship. We live in a surveillance state. I mean, all of us, whenever we look at our phone, we're being surveilled. And it's, for me, it's frightening. The way I see it in my own practice, as Joyce mentioned, I'm, a, I'm an HIV doc. I've been in practice since the 1990s when everybody was dying of AIDS and it was a spooky time. And for all of you who, who have HIV or know people with HIV, I mean, talk about coercion and talk about surveillance. Um, the healthcare system is a carceral state. And, you know, there's, there's no question about that. You know, if you go into a hospital, you give up your rights. And this is what I see on a daily basis when people need care and they want care, but they can't, they can't bear to get the care, right? Because things are going to happen to them that are out of their control. So how do I, how do I reconcile that, you know, as being part of that system? And that's a very painful place for me to be at. That was Paula Lum, MD, MPH, Professor of Clinical Medicine and Founding Program Director of the UCSF Primary Care Addiction Medicine Fellowship, speaking on the topic of the lure of coercion. Don't be fooled by kinder, gentler drug war tactics. Joyce McMillan is Executive Director of JMAC for Families in New York. I think oppression is a health issue. Mm -hmm. And I think all of these systems that force people into treatment or tell people um, we will invest in policing you, but not in supporting you. That you can go to, to the hospital for, um, to deliver a baby and they stop and frisk your bodily fluids for the purpose of what? The real health issue is our government surveillance and judgment and control and coercion and bullying of the citizens in this country. And the change comes when we rise up, continue to have these conversations and have a real uprising. The thing with America is they've never had their citizens do in this country what happens in other countries. America has never experienced what Haiti experienced when they took over the country. People are tired of being oppressed. I know that I am. I, I'm, I'm tired of being a black woman in America is like having six full-time jobs. So the health crisis is not the conversations that we're having that they're pointing fingers at. It's their judgment of the things they're pointing fingers at. And it's, even if someone does become addicted to a substance, I know people who've been addicted and happy. And I also know people who've been addicted and say, you know, I've lost a lot of things on this, utilizing this substance and I wish I could stop, right? But that is a personal decision. And for those who do wanna stop, there should be um, things in place to support what it is that they need. There is no investment in people in this country. There's only investment in policing people in this country. 
and that is the problem. That is the health issue. A police officer should never pull me over and say they smell marijuana in my car and I end up dead. That was Joyce McMillan, executive director of JMAC for Families in New York, speaking on the topic of the lure of coercion. Don't be fooled by kinder, gentler drug war tactics at the Drug Policy Alliance's 2023 International Reform Conference. And for now, that's it. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Prison Pipeline. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. Prison Pipeline is a volunteer production for community radio, syndicated via the Pacifica Foundation Radio Network's audio port service. Find this and other installments of Prison Pipeline on the web at kboo.fm slash prison pipeline. Join us again next week for another edition of Prison Pipeline. For now, this is Doug McVeigh saying so long. Just so long. Intentions